so there was a guy named Jack, and um, he was someone who lived around World War I. Uh, he was born in Ind, and his, his dream as a child was to go to Oxford University. Uh, and even till this day, Oxford University, one of all the world. And, uh, and this guy, he, he met his dream. He studied really hard. He was so brilliant that he actually ended up studying at Oxford. He was such a good student. Later on, uh, he was offered a position to teach at Oxford. So he became this famous professor at Oxford. But something interesting happened in his teaching career as he was teaching these students. Uh, although growing up, he himself considered himself atheist, maybe an agnostic. He didn't believe in God or didn't want to do anything to have anything to do with God. Uh, something happened in his heart that he became a believer, that he became And because he was so brilliant and excellent in writing, he ended up writing a lot of books uh, about the Christian faith. Um, and so uh, you might know some of his books, like the Chronicles of Narnia, like Mere Christianity. His parents called him Clive, but he himself named him Jack at four years old because um, he saw his, his dog die in a car crash. So ever since then, he said, I'm going to be called Jack. But his name is Clive, Clive Staples Lewis, C.S. Lewis. And a lot, a lot of us read his literature, but his life was full of hardships. At the age of 10, he lost his mother due to cancer. Um, his brother was basically an alcoholic. He also was supporting this one family that he took on uh, because before he went to university, he actually participated in the uh, and, and he was part of the army. And in the army, he had a buddy that they made a promise to one another, hey, if we die, make sure that we take care of each other's moms. And so that's what he ended up doing. He never got true to his word um, in, in his, his, his life. He supported this friend's family and he did what he could do for the Lord, and his public life was taking off. His career was taking off. He was doing radio shows, uh, great, uh, uh, doing, um, being a, but in his personal life, he was really, really struggling. But there was this one bright spot because he was corresponding to this one American writer named Joy David Mann. Uh, she was a lady, but they were just friends, okay? No romance involved. Uh, these guys were just friends. Uh, they just liked each other's work to the point where Joy, she came to the UK. They spent some time together sharing their work. And when it was time to go back, Joy said, well, my visa is up. It's expired. I have to go back to the States. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he enjoyed this friendship so much that he said, we should get married. Like, I, I don't really love you. Like, we're just friends, but just, uh, just, you know, I, I want you to stay here, and so let's just get married. So they actually got married. By the way, I think it was back then, and even true today, that that is absolutely illegal. So don't, don't try this. Although C.S. Lewis is a man of God, we know that even men of God can make some bad decisions. Um, but long story short, yeah, so they, con they, they, they continued in this friendship. They lived separately, uh, right? They just did their life on their own. But one day, Joy, she had this pain in her hip. And, and, and later she found out that it was actually cancer. And she called uh, C.S. Lewis and said, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm sick, I have cancer. And so C.S. Lewis does what a good friend would do. He supports the friend, takes care of the friend, and something strange happened. They fell in love. Like, yeah, good Lord, right? They fell in love. Like, 
uh, the more and more they spend time together, C.S. Lewis realized that this is the woman that I want to be. So they actually went to a church and had an official wedding ceremony, although they were legally married because of uh, different reasons. Now they were actually married because they were in love. And miraculously, Joy started feeling better, doing better, did all the things that she normally would do before until one day everything just went south. And the cancer came back and she died. And so C.S. Lewis, he lost this glimmer of hope that he had, this one bright spot that he had in his life. And he writes a book that is so raw, that is so painful, that he doesn't even put his name to this book. The book is called The Grief Observed. And he shares his feelings about this pain, what just happened. And, And this is what he writes in his What chokes every prayer and every hope is the memory of all the prayers my wife and I offered and all the false hopes we had. Not hopes raised merely by our own wishful thinking, hopes encouraged, even forced upon us by false diagnosis, by strange remissions, um, by one might even rank as a miracle. Step by step, we were led up to this garden pathway. Time God seemed most, most gracious. He was really preparing us for the next torture. And he summarizes this thought in such a way. He says, what reason do we have except our own desperate wishes to believe that God is by any standard we can conceive good? Now, you might think and follow this, this much to say these harsh words towards God. But, fair question. I think it's quite reasonable. Like, with all that happened in his life, ending, uh, that, that he would bring this question to the surface. And the truth is, you and I, we ask this question many times. When we struggled with the brokenness of this life, the brokenness of our life, when we felt like we were treated wrongly with sickness or People that we love, they go through sickness. A lot of times we ask this question, if God really is a good God, why do these things happen? Why does evil happen? And more specifically, uh, if I can apply this question to our text today, if God is a good God, why doesn't he answer my prayers? Right? Why doesn't he answer my prayers? How can you pray despite all the days that you were disappointed and discouraged because your prayers were not answered? And I think that's the question I want to address today. Um, But just to remind you of the context, we are in Luke chapter 11, this beautiful passage where Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And so far, what we discussed was prayer really begins with a relationship, begins with understanding that God is your father. Then you move on to worship because it's not simply about you. It's about the hallowing of God's name, the praise of God's name. Prayer allows you to understand that your life is about God's glory and it's about him being exalted among the nations. But also it's a prayer of lordship because you're acknowledging that not my will, not my kingdom, but your kingdom come, your will be done. And then you move into this area where you are declaring that you are a person of need and that God is your all provider, that you need God for your daily bread, you need God for forgiveness, that you need God so that you will be led not into temptation but into righteousness. And then you come to this point where Jesus, now after talking about who you pray to and what you need to say when you pray, now he's going to address the question how you pray and why you pray in such a way. So the attitude of prayer is 
and the motivation for this attitude. So look at verse 5. It says this, And he said to them, speaking to his disciples, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. So here's the situation. Like, it's, it's late, it's midnight, and you have a friend show up at your house. And this friend, you weren't expecting this friend, you didn't know this friend was going to show up, but he came to visit you, he's a close friend, and, and, but you have nothing to eat. Like, you have nothing to, to offer. Now, this might be surprising, silly to us, because, you know, you just don't do this in our society. You let know, uh, people know when you're arriving, if it's okay to, to go to their house. Uh, you give them your ETA, but again, none of that exists back in the days. Like, no email, no texting, so you can't really give your friend a heads up, hey, this is when I'm going to show up. So this friend just shows up. Uh, maybe he was kind of caught uh, somewhere in his travels, and so he arrives late at night. But the point is this. This friend is hungry, and, and, and you don't have anything to offer. You can't go to Taco Bell and, 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 or McDonald's or go to 7-Eleven, which, which is always open. Like, no, you can't do that because back in the day, like, when the sun goes down, everything is closed. And what people would normally do is, because they didn't have refrigerators, a good way to preserve food, they would bake a fresh bread every single day. They would cook fresh meals every single day. So they would just live day by day when it comes to food. And so you weren't expecting this buddy to show up, and so you don't really have anything to offer. But at the same time, you know that hospitality is a big deal in the first century. Now, this is something that, that we don't understand in our Western culture in America because when a stranger knocks on your door, what's the first thing that you do? You reach for your phone. You, you try to record or you reach for your gun to make sure that, okay, like, I, I don't know this person, right? Like, that's how we treat strangers. Like, but in many other places of this world, or especially in Jesus' time, if there is a stranger that shows up to your door, you welcome them. Like, you have no idea if they're in need. Uh, travelers often knocked on strangers' doors because they needed help. And so hospitality was a big deal in Jesus' culture, especially when it comes to someone that you know. You don't want to just, like, leave them starving. And so this guy has two options in this situation. Number one, he can be a poor host and just let his friends starve. Or he can be a poor neighbor. He can go around his neighborhood and in the middle of the night and ask, hey, does anyone have bread? And so this guy says, okay, I'll rather be a poor neighbor than a poor host. So he says, option number two. And so this is what happens. It says in verse five, friend. So this guy goes up to his neighbor and says, friend, which is a great way to start because you want to make sure that kind of you're being friendly. Lend me three loaves of bread. Uh, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. So what, what this man is asking is not much. It's three loaves. So one loaf is about, about, uh, you know, about the, the, the size of a, a big stone. Uh, and so maybe a better way to picture this is, is three biscuits. Like all I need is three biscuits. That's what he's saying. And I need this because a friend of mine came uh, to, to my house. I, don't, I wasn't expecting this and I have nothing to offer. In other words, I have a need that I can't meet. And so would you help me out? And so it says in verse 7, this is the response that his neighbor gives. It says, he will answer from within. So the doors are not open yet. Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. 
I cannot get up and give you anything. Man, what a terrible neighbor, right? Like, like you can't, it's, it's not a matter of I don't have any bread. Notice that. It's a matter of I just don't want to get up and give you the bread I have. That, that's his attitude. He's, 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 he's reluctant because he doesn't want to be bothered. It's inconvenient for him. And so what a terrible neighbor, right? But I kind of feel this neighbor, right? Because if you are in bed, you don't want to be bothered. Like, you're all comfortable. Like, you most likely no makeup. Like, like you, it, it's, it's a hassle to get up, especially there's no lights, no electricity, no flashlights, right? You most likely have to create a scene to find bread. On top of that, it's not just that he's in bed, but his family, his entire family is in bed, like his children are in bed, I think that's probably the tipping point, right? It's one thing for you to be in bed, it's another thing for your children to be in bed. If a child is in bed, you don't touch that child, right? Like these days, one of my biggest struggles is seeing Irene and Timothy wanting to wake up Luke. I don't know why. I think that's the sinful nature that they have inside of them. They don't want to play with their brother when he's awake, but when he's sleeping like a baby, all of a sudden, they go up to him, and they show all their affection and all their love to his brother. And it just makes me so mad. And so I understand this neighbor. It's like, hey, I ain't going to risk it. I'm not going to open up the door and create a scene so that all my, my children, they, they're going to wake up. No, I'm not going to do that. And so this is what Jesus says. So the guy says no. The neighbor says no. It says in verse 8, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend. So this guy has no intention to give um, based on their relationship. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And that word impudence literally means bold, like boldly, shameless, like This guy, it's not because of their relationship, because they were tight friends. The reason why this neighbor ends up giving this bread that the man was requesting is because he was basically bothered. Like, this, this guy was banging on the door, asking constantly, even though I said no, he wouldn't go away. So he's so persistent, he's so bold, literally shameless in his act. He doesn't have this, these social cues. And so like he's just there asking, give me bread, give me bread, give me bread, give me bread. And at some point, he's like, okay, here's the bread. Like, I'll give you whatever you need. That's what it says. Not just three loaves. It says he rose, gave him whatever he needed because he was so bothered by it. And this story comes after Jesus' great teaching about prayer. And so what's the point? Why is Jesus sharing this small story when it comes to his teaching of of, of prayer? I think a lot of times when we think about the parables, the stories that Jesus uh, tells us, like we, we try to put ourselves in the story. We try to identify, okay, out of all the different characters, who am I and, and who is God? And so you can kind of connect the dots. It seems like the guy who is in need, the guy who's asking for bread, going to his neighbor for help, that seems like, okay, me, because Jesus is teaching me to pray. And so there are certain things in my life that I don't have the ability to meet those needs, so I need to ask for help uh, to, to, to meet those needs. But does that make then God the neighbor inside? Is God... Like this, 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 this neighbor who is reluctant to give what he has, to share what he has, is, is God, this neighbor who is a terrible neighbor, and the only reason why he would give what his neighbor requests is because he is so bothered by it. Like he's, 
he, 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 he is annoyed by the request, the constant request. Is the point of today's story, hey, God, he might not give you what you want in your first try, but just pray and pray and pray and pray and just bother him to death, and then you will get what you need. Because it sure sounds like it. And you look at verse 9 and 10. It says this, And I tell you, now Jesus speaking, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So it almost seems like at this point, the point is, yes, just ask, seek, and knock. It's almost like the words that, that James shares in his letter. You receive not, but because you ask not. And so the problem that we have is that we're not asking enough. We need to bother God even more so. No, no, I don't think that's the point of today's story. I think Jesus clarifies this in in verse 11. This is what he says, driving his point home. It says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Uh, Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion. So uh, fish, eggs, those are daily products that you would use, ingredients that you would use to create a meal. Uh, You're fine with feeding that to a child, but you see scorpions, serpents, snakes, those are poisonous. And so just he's making this point that even evil fathers, like unholy, ungodly fathers, they know what to give their children. Now, I'm a sinful dad, but I know that when my son asks me for milk, I don't give him bleach. Like, I don't give him bad things. Like, I know how to give him good gifts. And that's the whole point. It says in verse 13, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. The important phrase there is how much more. So it's not a story of comparison. It's a story of contrast. That's what's happening. What Jesus is saying is this. The guy who's in the house, this neighbor who seems so terrible, unloving, like doesn't show any grace at all. Like That's not a picture of God. What, what Jesus is saying is this. If that guy, that Scrooge, if he was willing to open up the door to give what you need, how much more? If even that guy was willing to give the man bread, how much more will your loving, good, heavenly father give you what you need when you ask? That's the point. Like he's, he's making a contrast. So what we see is that God in this story is the true midnight friend that we need. It's the true friend that we want, that we deeply desire. He's the one that we can count on. The neighbor in today's story, he says to this man, go away. God says to us, no, come close. The neighbor says, hey, don't wake up my children. God says, well, you are my child. You can come to me. The neighbor says, I don't want to be bothered. God says, although I'm pretty busy, you know, uh, just orchestrating everything in this world, uh, you can come to me with your requests. Like, I'm going to drop and, and listen to you. Like, I'm going I'm, I'm to 
give you my attention, my undevoted attention. The friend says, well, you're out, I'm in, I'm not willing to go out to you. God says, well, I'm in heaven, you're on earth, but let me come close to you. God is so different from this neighbor, and the point is, if this neighbor, through the bold, persistent request of this man, was willing to give what was good, how much more will your heavenly Father, when you pray boldly and persistently, will he give you what you need? So two things I want us to learn about prayer just teaches us that we need to pray. We need to pray confidently. We need to pray confidently. Like, we have to have confidence. We have to be bold, almost to the point that we are shameless about our requests. The second thing is that we have to pray persistently. Confidence and persistence is the mark of the Christian prayer. God is inviting us because of his goodness, because of his grace, because we can trust his heart and his character, because he is all loving, that we can go to him with our requests. And it doesn't matter. It can be any time of the day. It can be for anything. There's nothing too big and nothing too small that you can bring to God. God is saying, let me hear what you have to say. This neighbor uh, gave what this man needed grudgingly, but God, he gives us what we need graciously. That's the difference. Which brings us to that opening question that I ask. If that's the case, why doesn't God answer all our prayers. If that's the case, why does sometimes God, although we pray earnestly, like with all our heart, why does it feel like he's not listening? Why does it feel like he's not giving us what what we want? I want to tackle this in two different angles. I think the first angle is this. Uh, One thing that really bothered me in the beginning about the Lord's Prayer is this. If you read Matthew's account of the Lord's Prayer, right before he teaches the Lord's Prayer, uh, Matthew says this. It says in Matthew 6, 7, and 8, Jesus says, And when you pray, do not heap to empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. In other words, people who don't know God, they just pray, 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 hoping that somehow God will pick it up. But, But Jesus says, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask them your father knows what you need before before you ask him isn't that crazy that god he knows exactly what you need before you even articulate what you need but the funny thing is in the lord's prayer he says come to me with your daily needs like come to me and pray isn't that kind of messed up that god already knows exactly what we need but he tells us to come and 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 make a request make a petition so that we will get what we need how, how does this work? Why doesn't God just give us what we need, buy everything that we need, provide everything that we need already? Now, I want to explain it like this. A lot of times with my kids, I know exactly what they want. Like, I can see their face, like, especially my, my, my daughter, Irene, the, I, 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 she has an ice cream face. Like, she, she, there's a way that she looks at me uh, that, that she said, it's screaming ice cream. She, I know it's a time of the day. It's right before a meal usually. She's hungry. And she doesn't want to eat healthy vegetables or, like, a nice cooked meal. What she wants is ice cream. And so she comes to me, and she says, Dad, I want ice cream. And I ask the question, oh, well, uh, why do you want ice cream? And, and she says, because I like it. Fair enough, right? A good reason. 
Like, she's really honest about her request. She likes ice cream. No, later on, she says, I know, I love ice cream. Like, so God, that give me ice cream. And I, I tell her, I sit her down, and what I say is, no, I, honey, I, I know that you love ice cream. I love ice cream, too. But there's a way that we can enjoy ice cream. I know if you eat ice cream right now, although you really want to eat ice cream, you're not going to finish your dinner. You're not going to want to eat all these healthy vegetables. Like, so what we're going to do is I want you to finish your meal, and afterwards we can think about ice cream. Now, why would I do that? I could say, before she says a single word, as she's walking towards me, I can say, no ice cream. Like, I can say that. I know exactly what she want. <laughs> I can say, no, eat your meal. I can say that. But why do I want to hear her out? Why do I want to listen to her? It's because I care about the relationship. I'm not just trying to teach her like what's right and what's wrong. That's an important part, absolutely. But on top of that, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to help her understand not just what's right and wrong, but why it's right and what's wrong. I think that's what God does when we're struggling with prayer. A lot of times when we pray, we pray for what we want. We ask things of God. And the bottom line, we can try to articulate it in a very nice way, but the bottom line is this. I just want it. I like it. This is just my desire. Like, God, this is why I want this person. This is why I want to be with this person. This is why I want to go to this school. This is why I want this job. At the end of the day, it's just, I, I just want it. And God could close doors immediately and, and lead you to the right path, obviously. But the reason why he invites us to pray is not just because he wants to teach us what's right and wrong. He wants to explain to us, help us understand his heart. As we're wrestling with God in prayer, as we're praying, God, this is my will, this is my way, I'm making this request known to you, but what is your way? Like, God, what is your will? I just don't know. Like, you're praying for someone maybe to, that you're hoping to, to marry someone, and you're praying, God, won't you, why don't you give someone? Why don't you give someone? And the more and more you pray, what happens is all of a sudden you're wondering, God, who do you want me to meet? Like, if you're withholding this, like, what type of man, what type of woman do you want me to meet? And all of a sudden, the question becomes not what you want. It's what God wants, his will, his ways. And you're wrestling with this idea. So I think one reason why there are unanswered prayers in our lives is because God, he knows what we need. A lot of times we request what we want, but he knows what we need. And so even in the knows, we can trust his heart. Um, and I think, you know, I shared this before, but when we pray, Lord, your will be done, I want your ways, let's imagine that when you pray, every single prayer that you pray gets answered, like, according to your wish. Like, every single thing that you want to happen in your life actually happens. Would you be happy with that type of world? Because if all your prayers are answered, you will be living in a world that's, that's full of your will, and full of your ways. And you might think, that would be so great. But I know I don't want to live in that type of world. You know why? Because I know my will is not perfect. Um, my ways are not always right. And the reason why we actually embrace God's unanswered prayers is this. That God, unlike other people, he's willing to say, no, that's the wrong way. This is actually the right way. He loves us so much that he's willing to, to say what is true to our hearts and the more and more we think about it, the unanswered prayers are a sign that, yes, God's way, his will is better than our ways and our will. And so we trust that if God doesn't answer in this season, we trust that he has something better. 
really, that he knows better. Because what we have is God is not only all loving and all kind and and all gracious, but he is all knowing and he is all wise. And so we trust his heart. But the second thing I want to share is this. But what if you pray actually in line of God's will, in line of God's way? And one example is this. I don't know if you ever prayed this, like if you prayed for a friend or family member to be saved. Like you've been praying that prayer earnestly. Maybe it's your parents, maybe it's your children that you want them to come back to the Lord. And God doesn't seem to be answering that prayer. Like, I mean, God, that's your will. You sent your one and only son to die on the cross to save the world. Why don't you answer that prayer? Like there's so many nights that I wrestled with that thought. God, like, don't you want this? Like, I'm sure you want this more than me. Why, don't, why aren't you opening this person's heart? Like, I'm sharing the gospel. I'm trying to do my best to communicate the beauty of the gospel. And God, you're not doing your part. It feels like, God, you're failing me. And isn't this your will? Another area is, is probably healing, right? God, isn't it your will that, 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 that we would be living in, 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 in peace and not in pain. God, is it against your will to ask for healing? You said in the Bible that there is power in prayer, that we can ask for healing in prayer. And so I pray according to God's will, but nothing happens. Like, how do you deal with that? What happens when actually it's not necessarily your selfish wants, but you actually try to bring what you think is God's will? And, and you're praying according to that. How do you make sense of that when he's not answering your prayers. I think the solution, the answer to that question is found at the end of today's passage when it says in verse 13, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, Matthew, he says something similar in in his account of the gospel, but he actually doesn't talk about the Holy Spirit. What he simply says is, how much more would a good Heavenly Father give you exactly what you need, give you good gifts? Um, and, and, And a lot of times what we would say is, well, I like Matthew's version of the uh, the teaching better because I would rather have good gifts and good things rather than the Holy Spirit. What am I going to do with the Holy Spirit? Like, okay, it's cool that, that God had given me something of him, but what am I going to do with his spirit when there are all these different needs? But think about it. What God is saying is this. When you come to him and you make your request known to him and you pray for these things in your life, that, that you're in need, you're broken, that you need his help, Sometimes he would teach you that his ways are different from your ways. Sometimes he will grant you the requests that you make he, some, because you're praying according to his will. Sometimes he might not grant you uh, what you wish because it's not according to his will. But regardless of it being a yes or a no or a kind of just wait a little bit, one thing that God always does is he gives us his presence. One thing that God always does is he gives us his presence. And you might think, What in the world is that? If you look at the life of Jesus, he had a very big unanswered prayer. Before he goes to the cross, he's praying at the Garden of Gethsemane, and in his flesh he's saying, Father, if if you are able, can you remove this cup from me? I don't want to go to the cross. Like This is not a journey that I I wanted to like. It would be better if I don't have to go through all the pain, all the shame, like all the torture, like, like, I know exactly what's going to happen. God, I don't want that. 
And so he prays earnestly to, to the Father, God, there's a different way. Give me a different way. And so he's praying, he's praying, he's praying. He's probably wrestling because he knows the will of God, the Father, and, and he's praying because he knows what his flesh desires, but he comes to a point where he can confidently say, but Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Now, why is that such an amazing prayer? That led Jesus to the cross, led him to death. But after the resurrection, that very prayer led the whole world into this trajectory where when we believe in Jesus, it's actually possible now to be saved. Because of his grace, because of the work, the sacrifice that he made on the cross, because of that unanswered prayer, God's glory is now spreading throughout the nations in our lives. Now, we don't fully understand in different moments why God will say no to something that seems like a reasonable request. One thing I will say is God is always working for our good, but he is always working for the spread of his glory as well. Maybe his will is to, for you to experience his goodness by giving you healing, restoration, what you need. Maybe his plan is to use your life to spread his glory. And I point to the end of 2 Corinthians where Paul, he says three times, I prayed earnestly because there's this thorn in my flesh that I just can't get rid of. It seems like it's from the devil. Like it's hurting me. It's so painful. God, I prayed earnestly three times. And what does God say? Like he says, I, I came to realize that this is the heart of Jesus, that, that the reason why he did not remove that thorn, the reason why he did not answer my request is so that he, he would help me understand that my grace is sufficient and made complete in your weakness. You know, I don't know a story um, where there's this, this man in his 20s, he finished seminary. He was on this track to be a pastor. Like, he, he was... He was he was well-educated, um, had all the characteristics of, of, of that, that would make a good pastor. And so it was just a matter of him finding a church and serving the Lord. And what happened after he graduated from seminary is he was hit by Lou Gehrig's disease. And what Lou Gehrig's disease is, is basically your body, like your muscles are falling apart, degenerating. And so your mobility is, is, is gone. Most people say that you don't last more than five years when that happens. Uh, everything becomes dull. Like, you, you, your, your body, basically, your, your mind is awake, your body is not listening. And so this guy was devastated. Like, he felt like, God, I gave my life to you to serve you, to serve your kingdom. This is what you give me. Why have you abandoned me, God? When I was willing to make the sacrifice, I mean, I wasn't being selfish. I was trying to do something with my life to bring you glory. And now I'm here in the hospital bed. I can't do anything, God. Like, Why? And he's wrestling with this thought. God, what is your will? Why do you allow this to happen? Why have you deserted me? And, and one day it finally kind of clicked to him. As he's meditating on God's word, as he's praying and seeking God's face, one day it hits him. That could it be that God has not abandoned him to be in this hospital? Could it be that God has called me to be in this hospital for the spread of his glory? And what he began to do is even though he physically was not able to go around that much, on a, hopped on a wheelchair, started going room to room, sharing the gospel. And people are saying, man, look at this, this person, Lou Gehrig's disease. Like he's in this devastating situation, yet he's talking about the goodness of the Father, how there's hope beyond this world. What prayer does is this. Sometimes it empowers you so that you can experience his goodness and miracles. Sometimes it empowers you so that you can stay faithful in your sufferings. 
like, and you can fulfill your purpose in sufferings. I think that's the beauty of the story that we see all throughout Scripture. When Joseph, his life was just downhill all the time. First he goes down to the pit, then he goes down as a servant, and then he goes down as, as, as a prisoner. Like His life was just all downhill. But it's so funny, in, in Genesis 39, it says the favor of the Lord was with Joseph. Although his life was downhill, God's presence was always with him, which is why he remained faithful. You look at the life of David, he was anointed as a king, and what happened? Everything went downhill. And yet he remained faithful. How? Because of the Spirit of God. And I love what it says in Psalm 138, verse 3. And this is, I believe, where the lyrics come from the last song that we sung. It says, I give you thanks. This is the words of David. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increase. In other words, you have made me bold. Like what David said was this, the way that you answered my prayer, yes, you have given me so much, the opportunity to serve as a king, but more importantly, you have given me your very presence. In the highs and lows of life, in the valleys and in the the hills, in every moment of my life, you have been my good shepherd. Your steadfast love, your goodness, your mercy will surely follow me for all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. How can he make this confession? Because every time he prays, yes, God answers, not always according to his way and his will, but God answers, first of all, by exposing his way, his will for his, David's life, but more importantly, by reminding David of his presence. And so what we see is that through the Holy Spirit, we're able to live a life that's still faithful and honoring to him. Now, you might just say, I pray because I need counsel. God gives you the counselor. You might say, well, I just pray because I need some comfort in my life. God gives you the ultimate comforter. Like, God gives you his very own presence. And so we pray. Even though we might have been disappointed in the past, past even though we might have been discouraged in the past we pray why first of all because we trust that his will his ways is is better than ours number two we believe that every time we wrestle with his will and his way god is doing something in our life he's shaping and molding us if he doesn't change our situation he's going to change our perspective and our attitude and our direction our passion in life he's going to change us from the inside a lot of times that's the point of prayer as you are praying as you as a self-centered self-exalting self-glorifying as you have a self-dependent person is praying. God is shaping you, molding you so that you can think of the kingdom. You can exalt God. You can make God at the center of your life. And you can, you can depend on him for all your needs. Prayer is doing work outside of you as much as it's doing inside of you. Prayer is changing you tremendously. So pray persistently with confidence, knowing that you have a good, gracious father who's willing to listen to you. Now, just one point of application uh, so in my hand, I have an envelope, and some of you might notice this. Uh, it's an envelope that we always send out in the middle of the year because uh, we write out our prayer requests, some of our spiritual goals uh, at our New Year's Eve service. And what we do is we just put it in an envelope, and normally around J- July, June, I would send it out so that people were reminded of the commitment that they have made to the Lord. Uh, this year, it was quite hard to send out this envelope. Uh, 
personally, I had it in my drawer like this whole time. And I'm, and I'm praying, I'm praying. And the main reason why it was hard to send out was because I know what was number one on a lot of people's lists when it comes to prayer. Like we were praying for healing as a congregation earlier in this year. Like we were praying for healing for one of our members and, and for God to intervene. As a pastor, I was praying for healing that he would magnify his name and glorify his name so that the people are, who are praying will experience his goodness and his grace. And what happened? Well, God was so good in this situation. But at the same time, the outcome wasn't necessarily what we expected. And so as a pastor, I'm looking at this letter envelope and I'm saying, God, I'm hoping that everyone just forgot about this envelope. Because I feel like if I send this out, maybe people will be discouraged, disappointed. Until I hit today's passage. And I personally had to repent. Because I limited God's work to just change in circumstances. I forgot the work that God was doing inside my heart and my life. So if you receive this in, in your mail, as you are looking over the prayer topics, number one, a lot of us are going to realize, man, I really didn't pray. <laughs> I, I list out all these different things. I'd never really earnestly prayed. But if you earnestly prayed over the request that you have made, number one, see if God gave you what you desired or led you to a better pathway. But the other thing that you can see, if, if it wasn't the outcome that you expected, how did God work in your life that your understanding of his goodness and his grace, did it expand at all? I think often we neglect that. So... Jesus invites us to pray, to enjoy his presence in prayer. So I'll just end with this one last passage, 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. It says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You humble yourself so that he will exalt you, but also you humble yourself and cast your anxieties to him because he cares for you. If you are a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a loving father. And trust his heart, trust his ways, and earnestly pray. Don't give up because he is going to lead you and guide you through your prayers. He's going to shape you and mold you through your prayers. Amen? Let's pray.